Hello, everybody. I'm Byron Reese. This is the Agora Podcast. Today, my guest is John Matthews. He is an old, old friend of mine, uh, and he is the co-founder. He started a nonprofit with a friend of his from the World Bank, and the nonprofit is called AGWA. It's an acronym for the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, AGWA. And I've invited him today to talk about uh, water policy. Welcome to the Agora Podcast with Byron Reese as he talks with great minds about what they're working on, what problems they're solving, and what passions drive them forward. Enjoy the show. So I guess, welcome to the show, John, but just start off and tell us about uh, how you got passionate or interested in water and how you came to start Agua. And then I'd love to just dive into its mission and what you've learned and what you can teach us. Sure. Well, I'm really happy to be here, Byron. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I I, uh, I would call myself a late bloomer. Uh, our, our friendship happily bloomed early. Um, uh, but as a, uh, professionally, I, I worked for about 12 years in the publishing industry. And then in my uh, early 30s, I, I felt like I was not making a contribution um, more generally, I, I felt like I was uh, a bit selfish in my in, in my work. Uh, I, I decided to leave publishing, though I loved it very much, and uh, and work uh, in the environment space. And I I felt like I needed to uh, work that, uh, to begin with to maybe become more credentialed. And so I started a PhD in ecology and evolution, and. Uh, uh, during that phase, uh, I uh, worked on uh, dragonflies and dragonfly migration uh, for about five years. Uh, dragonflies, we, we mostly think of them as a, as a terrestrial species, an aerial species, uh, but that's the adult form. And the larval form, how they develop from an egg uh, until they become an adult is actually all in the water. And most of their lifespan uh, for most species is actually spent in the water and uh, my, my PhD advisor, she was uh, one of the very first generation of climate impact ecologists, uh, uh, a really new uh, area that that started to develop in the '90s. Um, I, I, uh, she, she made me think very hard about what was the relationship between uh, that climate in which uh, a species or an ecosystem or an ecological community existed and. Uh, and and its climate, and what happens if the those connections get stressed or are sh- shifted as the climate itself evolves? Uh, it's a really old question, but it seemed really new uh, given our current period. And I remember I had a research site in southern Ontario uh, during grad school. And I remember being in this very cold water uh, in, a, in a in a small pond uh, collecting uh, dragonfly larvae. With, with a big dip net uh, in the middle of the summer, um, my legs freezing and and pondering the data that I already uh, had gathered over the previous few years. And I thought, gosh, if it's this complicated for a bug uh, to think about climate change and water, how complicated is it for a city? Or, or how complicated is it for a whole economy? Uh, how, what 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 are the implications for us as a species? And uh, at that point, I, I I really started to think of myself in a somewhat different way. Uh, I I uh, I 
could have called myself a conservation biologist or an aquatic entomologist, but then I started to think of myself really as a kind of water uh, uh, specialist, that water was this kind of medium through uh, which uh, climate change uh, expressed itself in really critical ways. Uh, my my uh, first uh, big job after grad school, uh, I, I was hired by WWF uh, to start and lead a... Uh, a, a global freshwater climate adaptation program. What that means, climate adaptation is a relatively new term. It was really new uh, in 2007, but the but the term uh, refers to how we adjust and anticipate to climate impacts. Uh, it, uh, so at, uh, at the point at that point, um, there were maybe 50 people on the planet who were working in that space. It was a very new specialty. Uh, to my knowledge, I was the only one who was working on it from a water perspective, uh, and and I had an essentially unlimited travel budget uh, for those three or four years. Uh, I I burned up the flight miles, uh, and mostly I felt like I was a kind of witness to the problem, uh, uh, to the kind of unfolding issues, and I could see uh, water and climate issues that were not just with ecosystems, but uh, as I had imagined in that little pond uh, in Ontario, it, I could see it happening in Shanghai with their water supply system, with the energy system uh, in Brazil. I could see it happening uh, uh, with farmers uh, in India, uh, uh, with uh, with the city of London and the finance. I, and I, I, I felt like my job, in a sense, was too small. I felt like I was being asked to work on this little conservation project when really it was an, uh, a, a gigantic issue that uh, I, I I needed to effectively move upstream uh, in terms of the way that I was thinking about and defining the problem. And about the time that I had this epiphany, uh, a colleague called, connected me uh, to a friend of his at the World Bank, an economist, and he said, my, my, my friend, Diego Rodriguez is his name, Diego is organizing a workshop uh, to describe the state of the art. Uh, what, what is it that we know and don't know about how, uh, how to manage water resources, water investments, uh, economic development uh, around water? And is it a big problem? Is it a small problem? Is it new knowledge or is it old knowledge? Uh, what do we need to do? And um, Diego and I had a quick chat uh, Back then, uh, we still had Rolodexes. His Rolodex was uh, uh, overlapping thematically uh, with, with mine, but not necessarily in terms of the names. Uh, we put together uh, a, a, a quick list of uh, people to include. It involved governments, uh, financial institutions, nonprofits and NGOs, civil society, some companies. Uh, we invited about 30 people, around 40 showed up. Uh, at this meeting in Stockholm in 2010. Uh, and uh, after about six hours, the hotel kicked us out. They said, uh, you're talking too much, you're talking too long, uh, would you please leave? Oh, we went to a bar and then a restaurant and another bar. Uh, and at the end of that evening, we said, actually, this was not a workshop. This was uh, uh, the launch of an organization. Uh, we actually need each other, these different disciplines, different institutions, the different regions of the world. We, we need to be able to develop and share our knowledge 
uh, together. And, uh, and, and that's how Agua started as an institution. And it actually was, there were kind of early shades of our practice too there. The idea that we had to crowdsource knowledge, uh, move across uh, disciplinary and institutional boundaries that uh, we needed to uh, think about where there were gaps and then organize uh, ourselves about how to fill those gaps. And that's been Agua since then. We're now there are 2,500 plus members globally in Agua. Uh, we have a, a mixture of uh, full-time and consultant staff around 20. Uh, we have uh, partners uh, on every continent except Antarctica. Uh, uh, we're still still waiting to partner with uh, the water utility at uh, McMurdo Sound. Um, it's a joke. Um, but we uh, are, are uh, like a strong presence in this area. And in a couple of weeks, I'll be at, at the Climate Cop in United Arab Emirates. We have a strong policy presence as well. We're not just uh, technical nerds. So, um, I get discouraged about water because, you know, when there's a hole in the ozone, they say, we need CFCs, get them out of stuff. And everybody's like, yeah. And, it, and we do it. It's like a success story, right? Or lead and gasoline. Yeah, we well, get that. So water's different because I read about in Port. I know you're in Oregon. I read about near Portland, there was a reservoir that some 19-year-old kid may or may not have peed in. It, the, the video is ambiguous. And the water guy drained 30 million gallons out of that reservoir into the river. Now, there were all kinds of people who remarked that dead birds were floating in the reservoir, too. I'm sure the birds flying over the reservoir weren't holding it in, and this guy lets his 30 million gallons out. But then you think, well, it doesn't really matter. It's Oregon. Like, that place is dripping with water. You, know, you drain 30 million gallons out of your reservoir, it just fills back up. And that 30 million went into the ocean, and no harm, no foul. You drop 30 million gallons in Dubai, all of a sudden it's a different thing. So, you know, when you get when you see something like it takes a gallon of water to make an, uh, to make an almond, well, is that bad or good? A gallon of water where? Like a gallon of water in the middle of the desert or a gallon of water up in Portland? Because they'll, they'll drain 30 million gallons just if somebody may have heated it. So what does a, a gallon mean? So how does an average, and then I learn, and then I learned water doesn't really even get consumed. Like if you live in a town, it gets pulled out of a river, used, you know, you flush it down the toilet, they clean it and put it back in the river. But it's all different if you're watering your yard, send it leaves, it drips that. Like, it's all just defies understanding. So how do you, do you even try to fight that battle of like, how do you, how do, you know, if I said, hey, what are the best three things I can know uh, to, to be a better, more responsible with water? I have a feeling there's no answer to that. It's like, well, where do you live? And so how do you overcome and how do you, how do you overcome an issue that's so complicated? It just, it's, even, it's, it's a just, powerful question and you're, you're right. I mean, that water is a, a global resource and, uh, and we can, we can treat it as a global resource, but mostly it's managed uh, on a local scale and, and, uh, context is always really critical, and I would argue that throughout our history as a species, uh, it is it, it's that local context that's been most important for us. Um, where uh, the, the story of civilization is actually often a story of, of water management, uh, water control, 
ancient Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, uh, the Harappan civilization uh, of uh, the Indian subcontinent, um, uh, which is uh, in equal uh, in age to the Egyptians um, and their intense water management system, or the Yangtze, um, uh, uh, Teotihuacan as an island city uh, in a lake in Mexico. Um, you know, the water is is intimately involved with us as a species, and that that local component it, uh, it is important. I'd say what what is something that I often start with uh, when I'm in, engaging with a new partner, or when when our expertise is being brought in, is that people often view it almost as too local uh, of, a, of a resource, that they're not thinking of it as a water system uh, and a water cycle. And those are two, two concepts that are really important. First off, the, the, the water cycle. Where, uh, where I live, I, I, I live a little bit south of Portland, um, and uh, most of the, the water is, is highly seasonal. It comes as uh, precipitation during the, the, the winter. And uh, during the rest of the year, we still have water. Where does that water come from? It's either coming from near-surface groundwater that's basically essentially a reservoir that's been filled up by the rain, or it's uh, coming from snowpack, from the, the melting of, uh, of frozen water uh, that is uh, coming from the nearby mountains, the Cascades and the Coast Range. Uh, and I, as simply understanding this movement of water, uh, the, 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 the patterns of water renewal uh, are, is, uh, is, a, is a, a very a basic gap. Where, uh, it, it's, it's too easy uh, to kind of think about what, where is the water for my home or for my city, the water, where does your water come from? It comes from a pipe. No, it doesn't come from a pipe. Um, it, it comes from the water cycle. And that uh, I would also say the water system is important too. And that really brings in the kind of human element. Uh, so in the city where I live, we're uh, between two rivers, uh, the Mary's River and the Willamette River. And we have upstream and downstream partners. Uh, th there are other cities that are upstream from us. Uh, the city of Eugene, there are foresters uh, that are upstream from us, uh, big farms. Uh, there are big factories that use uh, water quite intensively that are upstream from us. And then downstream, there's the massive city of Portland, uh, and, the, and then even farther from there, the Columbia River, the great river uh, for this part of North America, uh, which is uh, involved in global trade issues, uh, uh, which is the, the kind of main interface for salmon connecting uh, the oceans uh, with the, the the great interior of North America. Um, that so that that sense of a system where the choices that we have, the the levers, the options, where, who who are the stakeholders that are maybe out outside of my line of sight uh, that I need to be engaging with? And the challenge with climate is, it's altering all of those relationships. That that uh, uh, for if we look back in human history, you know we we tended to say what happened over the last ten years or twenty years or thirty years, and that's going to tell us more or less what's going to happen in the next ten years or twenty years or thirty years. Uh, it, but that's an assumption that doesn't make sense anymore. Right now, California uh, 
uh, and probably within a decade, Oregon too. Uh, California's in, in a 1,200-year drought. Uh, that's a, that is a, a meaningful drought by any human uh, scale. And uh, I would say that maybe they shouldn't be talking about it as a drought anymore, that this is actually kind of a long-term uh, new normal uh, in, a, in readjustment and is probably going to move from the uh, statistically from a 1,200-year drought to a 2,000-year drought or a 3,000-year drought uh, in the near future. And our systems, uh, to go back to the systems language, our systems aren't set up uh, for that. They, they were designed maybe for the water conditions that we had in 1970 or in 1950, not for where we are in 2023, not where, uh, where we might be in 2040. And, and just to be really clear, a 1,200-year drought doesn't mean a 1,200-year-long drought. It that's means right. a drought that comes along every 1,200 years. That's exactly you're right. you're saying that may actually just be the climate now. That's not... Yeah, uh, and, and, and climate well, change... Well, let me just jump to the end. And what is success... I know what success looks like to the CFC people. No more CFCs. What does success look like to Agua? Uh, that actually is a is an, a, a really powerful and subtle question. Uh, when I'm in UAE in a few weeks at the COP, the one of the primary questions that is meant to be addressed this year is called the GGA, the Global Goal and Adaptation. Um, if uh, many of your listeners, if they at all follow follow climate uh, uh, a policy or climate issues, even at the most basic level, they probably heard. The term 1.5 degrees. Um, that's a that's a target uh, uh, from people who are really focused on carbon emissions and carbon sequestration, and it's a it's a way that we can talk at a global scale about uh, how much uh, back kind of background warming uh, we're willing to tolerate. Uh, what our, our our kind of global policy goal should be: 1.5 degrees increase over uh, over pre-industrial levels by 2030. Uh, that's a, a statement from the Paris Agreement. For adaptation, and uh, and sometimes uh, the newer term is climate resilience. For adaptation resilience issues, what uh, it's it's I I believe working in this area for eighteen years or something, I believe it's impossible to come up with a single number like that, and especially impossible to come up with a global number uh, that that makes sense in Nepal as well as Oregon. Um, what I think we need to do is 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 be intensely aware of this relationship with water, that water is an expression uh, of climate and uh, that it's a, uh, it's also, uh, it's not just a hazard, it's not just a threat, it's actually also a big part of how we think about effective climate adaptation and resilience. Um, a major uh, climate science body uh, about a year and a half ago came out with a statement that said that we need to uh, 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 pursue for all types of projects what they called water-based adaptation. And what they mean by that is is placing water resources and resilient water management at the center of our work. And to me, that, that means not just managing water for how much we have or for the, uh, uh, for the water quality. It means actually managing it for flexible and dynamic use, um, for shared use, uh, and, and so the indicators that I would say how we would measure success uh, 
for adaptation resilience, for the global goal on adaptation, for your question, how we measure success for Agua, I think is really a question about how uh, you are are measuring for this kind of open-ended future um, uh, for a broader climate future than we've experienced in, in the past. My um, conversations with you, I don't think this has ever come up explicitly, but what I have gleaned from what you have said to me over the years is you are equally frustrated with two groups because you, I think you've, you have intimated that their conclusions are the same. And so one on one end, there would be the deniers who say, yeah, 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 no problem. And on the other end are the fatalists, the ones who are like, yeah, yeah we're screwed. And that both of them would come to the same conclusion that we don't need to do anything. I think you're that, exactly right. Yeah. And, uh, that there's a, and that there's a middle path. And what does that look like? What does that that look like to a regular person? Like, what is my appropriate level of panic and activity and engagement in a world where I'm supposed to be changing my smoke alarm batteries twice a year or something? I don't know. Like, in a, in a world where all of this stuff is happening and all these things competing for my attention, what's what's the what's my ideal? What should I be doing? Like, how then should I live? What's the space between climate denial and climate anxiety? I I I think there is a, a lot that's in that space, um, and I'll I'll give an answer over a, a couple of different scales. But uh, I, I talk about it with my son, or I've I've, I've uh, talked to some of his classmates at his school, or other young people. Um, you know, I I I actually the first. Thing I, I try to, to do is in my tone, I, is I, I, I say, actually, uh, there's a lot that's good that's happening. Uh, there's a lot of new knowledge that has emerged and that a lot of it's very practical and is already being implemented. It may not be covered very well in the media, um, uh, but look for it because it's there. In a local sense, you know, for uh, John Matthews uh, living in Corvallis, Oregon, uh, I think uh, what local action often looks like is uh, working to make sure that your community is already thinking along these lines about about preparation, uh, getting getting ready for the climate that you're headed towards. For uh, for our town, we get almost all of our water, for instance, for our water utility from a single source. Uh, we uh, we live very close to a forest that uh, has not burned really for thousands of years, and it will begin burning almost certainly this century, probably within a decade or two. And, uh, and so the kind of return of uh, major forest fires for this area is something that we are not ready for. And there are a whole bunch of systemic changes that we need to be ready. I would even go farther that there maybe are other things that we need to be concerned uh, uh, at, at a local scale that we can also start uh, preparing for. We are going to see an influx of uh, climate refugees in Oregon. And I would say that maybe they're already starting to arrive here. Uh, people moving from California, Central America uh, uh, already that are uh, uh, that they're they're stressed uh, uh, with climate climate impacts there um, that that are causing large migration. We need to be ready. We we're, we can't just fence them out, um, and we need to be thinking about the systems here. Those are all uh, very tangible, practical, uh, local level actions. At, at, at the next level, uh, I would say is uh, at, at, at the level of a country. And 
we need to make sure that that uh, resilience is a national priority in every country. That's something that Agua works on very uh, uh, very actively. We're working with about two dozen countries on their national climate planning processes right now. Countries ranging from Malawi in Egypt, uh, uh, Nepal, Brazil, Nigeria, um, uh, a wide range of countries, and uh, about how they get ready. Uh, and those those are uh, exciting conversations because they these are we're essentially creating kind of a new way of thinking about uh, what equity and uh, environmental uh, uh, sustainability and um, uh, and economic development, even prosperity and growth, uh, mean in the context of a climate, a changing climate, uh, and it 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 uh, th there is a high risk of having winners and losers in that process. We want to make sure that when we go into that, that we're making collective, shared, well-informed decisions about about those priorities. I I think we're even starting to see maybe the emergence of some resilience politicians in some places around the world. And the last level is at a global level. One of the reasons why, despite a lot of frustration uh, as an individual, uh, that I go to these climate cops, um, uh, that I think it's important that uh, that I that I keep going. Uh, the first cop I went to was in 2009, the Copenhagen cop, uh, which was a disaster if you were there. Um, uh, but uh, but they they really have improved. I was there in Paris too uh, in 2015. That was there was like a really positive uh, sense of movement. Glasgow uh, a couple of years ago was really good. There there's been a steady sense of progress that we can start to figure these things out. Um, we can slow down climate change on the carbon side, but we can also make sure that we help our global brothers and sisters get ready, and uh, and. Uh, and we need to essentially set up institutions that that can um, both help buffer uh, the impacts that have already happened, maybe the vulnerable communities and populations and ecosystems that we worry about. Um, but we also need to uh, think of investment globally, the global flow of capital, uh, the global flow of people uh, and trade um, uh, as as ways that we can uh, use to build uh, resilience. Is, is policy really the only effective tool for these kinds of issues? Government policy, because as you said, there's winners and losers. These are big, com complicated issues, and, they, and, and they're governed by lots of legislation. Is that really where you do all of your, I don't want to say battling, that, over, that overdoes it, but that's what all of your are all of your objectives around policy issues. Not at all. Uh, but uh, but often um, government institutions, whether it's in a mayor's office or in a president's office, uh, they they often uh, help set the table. Um, they they often help define a bunch of other relationships. And if you can kind of alter the decision making processes in in those systems, uh, then you don't just make one project, you actually alter a program that generates lots of other projects. Uh, you, you can essentially update the software that your government is working under. Uh, uh, but we also work with, uh, with civil society. This morning, I had a conversation with uh, a, 
uh, a, a, a group that lives in southern Costa Rica. Mostly they work with climate refugees moving throughout Central America. Um, and they work with our rural livelihoods in that area. Uh, they are very concerned about climate impacts on the, the rivers in their system, how it's affecting the agriculture, rural economies. Um, and uh, I felt very moved uh, to be engaging and talking uh, with them. They're, they're called the Living River Movement uh, uh, in, in Costa Rica. Um, the, uh, the last, last week I spoke with a major, uh, uh, a company that they, if, if you were to walk into a bar and look behind the bar at all the bottles, uh, in Europe or North America or in East Asia, maybe 20 to 30% of the bottles actually came from that company directly or indirectly. It's a very large, uh, uh, uh company. They have very long and extended supply chains. Uh, and uh, what what a company does, they 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 could uh, uh, they could do a lot of damage very quickly, even much um, uh, before, say, a government and its regulatory system is able to react. Uh, and what I find is uh, that engaging with uh, the private sector is actually really critical to make sure that they understand that they have a shared responsibility. That maybe that they. Uh, have an inclina inclination to just protect themselves when they actually need to think about where water permeates their whole systems, their operations, even their direct and indirect policies uh, 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 across their their own networks, and uh, that they they actually need to have a kind of collective sense of resilience that they're aware of and building in, so that if their employees are not able to get up and take a shower in the morning where their kids aren't able to, to get a warm meal uh, at, at, at school, um, if their partners uh, are not able uh, to uh, function effectively, then that company itself is not resilient. And, uh, and they, we need to make sure that, that the private sector is understanding uh, and enabled to be able to operate in a resilient way uh, in, in places maybe where Water resources are really scarce or highly competitive or are being reshaped very rapidly because of climate change. Well, in, in the grand scheme of things, you're a relatively small organization with an incredibly large mission. And, and so if people uh, listening want to uh, support you, I assume you wouldn't turn them away. How could they do that? Uh, there, Thanks for asking that. There's a couple of ways. Uh, uh, if they're interested in the kind of technical engagement or policy engagement, we uh, we we always welcome that. That's we even crowdsource our, a lot of our policy work, uh, and we've had though we are small in terms of our our core staff, uh, we have a big footprint. We have two staff members, for instance, that are seconded right now to the COP presidency in UAE, the first ever a uh, water team um, that's uh, worked with a COP presidency. Uh, and we uh, work very deeply in terms of setting uh, a lot of uh, global policy objectives. Uh, you might be interested in maybe some more nationally oriented work as well in, in whatever country you live in. And uh, maybe you have a, a technical contribution or technical area of expertise that you might be interested in finance or, uh, or uh, uh, planning or, uh, uh, or science. Uh, we'd love to talk with you about that. And we always take donations too. Um, 
you can visit our, our website. It's alliance4water.org. Uh, uh, or you can Google us, Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, AGWA, A-G-W-A, and, and find us. And uh, we uh, would love to learn more about you, uh, your water stories, and, and how we might be able to work together. All right, John. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, feels like one of those topics I, I I should know a lot more about, and I don't. And uh, uh, and I know I started by saying there's all these things, but in the end, I mean, we are water, right? Like we're seventy whatever percent water, and we we can go longer without uh, uh, water. I mean, you know, you know all of it. Like it, it is like, well, I guess it's second to air. But uh, beyond that, it's hard to uh, to to see. Well, I uh, honestly, I uh, I I think the it, it one of the reasons I love water, uh, it, it's it's inherently beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, but it also kind of connects. You you can look at all human activities through it, and uh, there's even strong spiritual dimensions in every religious tradition I'm aware of that are huh. connected to water, uh, and. Uh, and I often find that that's a good place to to start with uh, with with many people is that is that deep spiritual connection around the water. All right. Well, thank you, John. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Byron. Bye bye. Bye bye. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to like, comment, and subscribe so that more folks like you can become a part of the Agora. Visit byronreese.com for more information about each episode and to learn about Byron's forthcoming book, We Are Agora.